Welcome to the History of Africana Philosophy by Chike Jeffers and Peter Adamson, brought to you with the support of the King's College London Philosophy Department and the LMU in Munich, online at historyofphilosophy.net. Today's episode, God is a Negro, Henry McNeil Turner. There's a saying that goes, if you aren't a liberal when you're young, then you have no heart, and if you're not a conservative when you get older, then you have no head. And it's true that this is a well-beaten political path. That icon of modern American conservatism, Ronald Reagan, for instance, was once upon a time a liberal who supported the New Deal. It seems that the explanation for such changes of heart, or as the saying would have it, abandonments of the heart for the head, is not far to seek. People start out with optimistic ideals, and the conviction that the world may be changed to fit those ideals, when the world stubbornly refuses to do so, they abandon their idealism and adopt pragmatic caution instead. Thus, Irving Kristol, another left-winger who became right-wing, said that a conservative is a liberal who has been mugged by reality. But the world can teach the opposite lesson, too, that caution and modest demands for incremental improvement achieve very little, so that a more radical approach is needed. This was the lesson learned by Henry McNeil Turner, a leading figure of the African-American church in the late 19th century, who made his mark as a preacher, theologian, journalist, and politician. The versatility of his pursuits matched the diversity of the positions he adopted. He was first an apostle of economic integration, then a stubborn advocate of emigration, first a valued colleague of white politicians, then a firebrand who assured his readers that the devil is white, not black, a man devoted to organizing and growing his church, who nonetheless seemed almost to delight in adopting unpopular opinions a great enthusiast for the promise of Africa, who was convinced that that promise could be fulfilled only if Africa became more like America. His more radical final position is the one that inspired this remark by an early biographer of Turner, No man of our race has ever said so many harsh, unvarnished, and biting things about the white American and lived to repeat it. Turner was born in 1834 in South Carolina, but not into slavery. His family's story had it that this was because his grandfather was of royal African blood. He first learned to read at a law firm where he had a job doing menial labor. From this humble beginning, he became an itinerant preacher crisscrossing the antebellum south. He himself would later claim to have traveled more than 15,000 miles in the service of the church and say that he had to pass through blood and fire, which sounds melodramatic until you hear him tell of hiding in hollow logs from the Ku Klux Klan who repeatedly threatened violence against him. He joined the Union Army as a chaplain, now a recruiter of soldiers, as well as souls, but left this post to focus on building up the African Methodist Episcopal Church in Georgia. It was here that his political career would reach its greatest heights. Following the Civil War, he was a representative at the Georgia Constitutional Convention in 1867, then elected to the state's House of Representatives in 1868. It was at this point that Turner got mugged by reality. His policy had been to work together with white politicians, even former rebels of the Confederacy, whose right to sit in the Georgia House was supported by Turner. He said, Let us love the whites, and let bygones be bygones. Neither taunt nor insult them for past grievances, respect them, honor them, work for them, but still let us be men. So his white peers valued him as a man they could work with, until they decided that they didn't have to. 
The House voted to expel all the black members, with the measure being carried by a whopping 83 to 23 vote. Republican lawmakers actually gave up their own majority by supporting the expulsion in a sinister white supremacist version of T. Thomas Fortune's advice to put race above party. Turner was not pleased. Before the vote, but knowing what the outcome would be, he delivered a speech condemning the white representatives. So far as I am personally concerned, he admitted, no man in Georgia has been more conservative than I. Anything to please the white folks has been my motto. Now things were different. He stated, I am here to demand my rights and to hurl thunderbolts at the men who would dare to cross the threshold of my manhood. Turner called on the tropes of religious preaching, telling his opponents that by expelling him and his black colleagues from the legislature, they were in effect expelling themselves from God's community. This event was arguably the moment that Turner, true to his name, reached a turning point. Tunde Adeleke has commented that from here on out, Turner's alienation was total and unequivocal. Increasingly, he became known as a supporter of emigration to Africa. His rationale for this was laid out in numerous writings, for instance, a speech on the present duties and future destiny of the Negro race from 1872. Here he touches on the familiar theme of black uplift, saying that the prospectus of the Negro lies in his own intellectual cabinet. The Negro must climb his own ladder if he ever scales the mount of distinction. For the most part, in fact, this speech seems to be describing progress within American culture, as Turner extols the value of agricultural innovation and even jury duty. But he then comes to defend the desirability of emigration. Black Americans are outnumbered by white ones, who show every sign of continuing to oppress them. Even the open spaces out west will soon enough be dominated by the white population, and the best option is to leave the country entirely. Turner was criticized for this stance by, among others, Frederick Douglass. In response, he denied that he was entirely giving up on America. A piece from the following year, called The Negro in All Ages, addressed Douglass directly, saying, I do not wish it understood that I am advocating African immigration, but I believe it is our duty to civilize our fatherland, and the only way to civilize a people is to move into their midst and live among them. His idea was not to have the whole black population move across the sea, but to engage in a slow and gradual operation, the strategy that had always been pursued by the American Colonization Society. Turner did not hesitate to praise this controversial organization, which he admired as the sole means by which African Americans were connected back to the fatherland. This line of argument was pursued in greater depth in his 1879 essay, Emigration of the Colored People of the United States. It opens by stressing that emigration, or colonization, is a voluntary movement of peoples, the tacit contrast being, of course, the slave trade, and that this sort of movement has gone on throughout history, going back to antiquity. This shows, argues Turner, that emigration has the sanction of heaven and is an indispensable prerequisite to the material, social, and intellectual growth of a people. Here, we come to the core philosophical and theological justification of Turner's emigrationism. It is divinely ordained, in part because travel to Africa offered a way for African Americans to escape oppression. As Turner said, we must either rebel at home or seek fortunes elsewhere. We can never acquire power sitting here quietly as menials. Or, on another occasion, don't you see it's a white man's government? And don't you see they mean at all hazards to keep the Negro down? And don't you see the Negro does not intend to stay down, 
without a fuss and an interminable broil, then why waste our time in trying to stay here? But there was another important purpose to the emigrationist project, namely that the emigrants would bring moral and religious instruction to Africa itself. Indeed, these two goals, liberation for African Americans and enlightenment for Native Africans, were closely linked in Turner's mind. In an essay called Two Colored People, written quite a bit later in 1895, he said, I believe that two or three millions of us ought to go to Africa and build up a civilized nation and show the world that we can be statesmen, generals, bankers, merchants, philosophers, inventors, and everything that anybody else is. That aspiration stayed with Turner throughout his career. He mounted often unsuccessful emigrationist projects as early as 1862, when he targeted Panama as a possible site of settlement, and as late as 1903, now an elderly statesman who continued to think that leaving the states was a fine idea. For Turner, the building of civilization in Africa would retrospectively justify the evils that made emigration necessary in the first place. A small example of this kind of thinking can be found in his discussion of the ACS in The Negro in All Ages. Many critics of this organization had argued that its founders did not have the welfare of the emigrants or the African continent at heart. As we've seen, the ACS was often suspected of wanting to deport free blacks so as to ensure greater control over those who were still enslaved. To which Turner said, in effect, so what? Many a racist soldier had fought for the North in the Civil War and helped to end slavery. In the same way, the nefarious motives of some white members of the ACS were simply another evidence that providence overrules evil for good. A more significant and more startling application of his theodicy comes in Turner's attempt to reconcile slavery itself with the universality of divine providence. He was convinced that the suffering of African Americans must have had some purpose. This purpose he located in the fact that enslaved Africans were exposed to European religion and culture, which would not have happened otherwise. He called slavery the most rapid transit from barbarism to Christian civilization for the Negro. When Turner called slavery providential, he gave this term a rather technical sense. He drew a distinction between two kinds of thing ordained by God, those that are providential and those that are divine. Divine things are permanent features of God's creation, whereas providential things are temporary, decreed by God with a view to some specific end. In this case, the end in view was the enlightenment of Africa by its returning children, a great good made possible by the great suffering of the slave trade. This goes hand in hand with his idea that only a part of the African American population might need to go to Africa. These should be among the best and brightest, those well equipped for shedding the light of truth, knowledge, and morality upon a still dark continent. Turner put it like this As soon as we are educated sufficiently to assume control, of our vast ancestral domain, we will hear the voice of a mysterious providence, saying, Return to the land of your fathers. And it must be said that Turner practiced what he preached. In fact, he did so precisely by preaching. In 1891, he traveled to Sierra Leone and Liberia to spread the gospel. While there, he failed to develop the same cultural openness that marked his contemporary, Edward Blyden. Turner thought little of Islam and no more of traditional African beliefs which he characterized as heathen darkness. The West Africans, as Blyden noted, were not that impressed with Turner either, but he had more success proselytizing for the church in South Africa. 
Turner's reconciliation of slavery with God's providence is open to criticism, and not only because of his disdain for indigenous African culture. The aforementioned Tunde Adeleke critiques Turner for setting himself up as someone with the superior and civilized values to transform Africans culturally. Adeleke also thinks Turner was effectively letting white slaveholders off the hook by making them instruments of God's plan. Of course, the white Americans of Turner's day, especially those who had owned slaves or otherwise been involved in what was euphemistically called the peculiar institution, might have been glad to think of themselves as such instruments. But Turner himself was not offering them absolution. To the contrary, he was clear that even if their wickedness was turned to good ends, this justified God, not them. While he admitted that slavery was a historical necessity, he charged the white man with defaulting on his obligation to God and the black man by forbidding blacks to improve themselves. So when Turner remarked that emigration would fulfill a plan in which infinite wisdom intended to evolve ultimate good out of a temporary evil, both the temporary evil and ultimate good were real. His theodicy was designed to explain how good is providentially brought forth from evil, not to show that evil does not exist. Which makes it puzzling that Turner can also be found rejecting what he called the placid logic that makes all events contribute to some great good, since evil is never used by infinite wisdom as an indispensable requisite for political or moral good. At first glance, this statement looks to be in flat contradiction to his own theodicy. We might explain the discrepancy by noticing that the passage was written in 1864, years before his disappointment with the Georgia legislature and fervent support of emigration, but that's unlikely since only two years later, he was saying that God winked at slavery because it was an effective means to bring moral and intellectual culture to Africa. Evidently, this was an idea that Turner held throughout his career. So instead, we might lay stress on the word indispensable in that problematic passage. Confronted by evil freely committed by humans, God is able to turn it to good ends, but this does not mean he could never bring about those ends without using evil as an instrument. It's characteristic of Turner, who was after all a preacher and bishop, that he approached philosophical questions through the prism of religion. This applies to his treatment of race in his lecture, The Negro in All Ages, which promises to refute abominable anti-scriptural and pseudo-philosophical theories about the inferiority of black people. Turner does indeed meet pseudoscience on its own ground, for example by noting that he has seen cadavers with the skin removed and learned that the differences between black and white bodies are, quite literally, only skin deep. Differences in color are, he says, simply the result of climate. Yet his overall approach is in sharp contrast to the sort of anthropological and empirical argumentation we found in Antenor Firmin. Attacking the same racist pseudoscience that Firmin demolished with real science, Turner for the most part depends on biblical proof to establish what he calls the great doctrine of race unity, namely that all humans have one original source. His approach to scripture is not naively literalist, and he makes clear that one cannot simply take the Bible at face value when calculating things like the age of humankind, but the central Christian doctrine of original sin does require that all humans share common descent. Humans have not evolved from monkeys, as Darwin would claim, Turner pours scorn on this theory, but from the humans who committed that original sin. As he said on a later occasion, I wish I could trace my race to some other source 
than the fallen and unfortunate Adam, I wish I could give both him and Mother Eve to our white friends if they desire it, but I can't. He is my daddy too. In what may seem another paradox of Turner's thought, his insistence on the superficiality of racial difference did not stop him from finding his identity, including his religious identity, in blackness. Like many other 19th century African-American intellectuals, he pointed to the long history of achievement among Africans, going back to Egypt, the Kingdom of Kush, and Ethiopia, with the brilliance of the race shown more recently by such figures as Ignatius Sancho, Benjamin Banneker, and Frederick Douglass. Turner also pointed out that Jesus was not white, and proposed retranslating the Bible with an eye to the concerns of black people, here taking inspiration from feminists who had the idea of producing a version of the Bible translated from a female point of view. More provocative still was his notorious remark made in an 1895 sermon at Atlanta that God is a Negro. It's not quite clear how seriously we should take this, or rather, it's clear it was meant seriously, but perhaps not literally. Turner's point was that black people should not hesitate to do as humans have always done and imagine a deity who looks more or less like them. In this respect, his claim that God is a Negro was fundamentally an expression of racial pride, not a dubious bit of theology. He thus explained himself by saying, we do not believe that there is any hope for a race of people who do not believe that they look like God. Yet, just one year earlier, he had said, there is no such being as a white God. God is neither white nor black. Perhaps it's the first part of that statement that captures his point best. White people needed to stop thinking that they alone are created in God's image, and for sure, black peoples needed to stop following suit, for instance, by hoping that in the afterlife they may rise with white bodies. So in another variation on the theme, he said, we are no stickler as to God's color, but we certainly protest against God being a white man. His musings on God's color were intended to bring his audience to a self-respect and a sense of their own dignity that he thought was sorely lacking. In a formulation that sounds strikingly like more famous slogans that have emerged closer to our own day, Turner argued, a man must believe he is somebody before he is acknowledged as somebody. Respect black. While he was consistent in promoting that central message, it must be said that Turner was given to making bold, even inflammatory declarations, and then backing away from them when challenged. It was a habit he kept in later life, like in 1906 when he said, to the Negro in the country, the American flag is a dirty and contemptible rag. Not a star in it can the colored man claim, for it is no longer the symbol of our manhood, rights, and liberty. This statement, with its echoes of Douglas's strident speech about the 4th of July, could have gotten Turner indicted for treason, and he hastened to insist that his remarks had been taken out of context. But we're not really buying that story, given that back in 1883, Turner had already said in response to the Supreme Court's overturning of the civil rights law that this decision absolves the Negro's allegiance to the general government, makes the American flag to him a rag of contempt instead of a symbol of liberty. A philosophically-minded reader may wish that Turner would have stuck to his guns and been more consistent, but it's actually philosophically illuminating that he was so often pulled in different directions, both politically and ideologically. Indeed, it is striking that many of the figures we've been covering in recent episodes changed their views over time, or seemed hard to pin down throughout their career. 
Examples would include Douglas's views on the acceptability of violence, Blyden's movement from political to cultural nationalism, and the changes of heart found in Russworm and Delaney, both of whom came to support emigration after they too were mugged by the reality of American racism. Having gotten this far into our series, it's safe to assume you have some interest in the history of Africana thought in this period, but even people who aren't interested in the topic for its own sake might well take lessons from it concerning the difficulty of reconciling moral and political principles which are compelling in themselves but clash with one another. We may feel allegiance to our whole community or nation and want to find our place in it, but equally, we may have a sense of belonging to a smaller group, defined, for instance, along racial or gender lines. We may rage against injustice, but have moral compunctions about using violence or other extreme measures to fight that injustice. We may hold that one set of moral, scientific, or religious principles is the truth, while also seeing that other cultural perspectives should not be dismissed as worthless. Such tensions were felt keenly and in a distinctive way by a range of 19th century thinkers in the face of the monstrous oppression of slavery, but they are not going to go away as we turn to the 20th century. And that's what we'll be doing over the next episodes by way of a couple of transitional figures who are among the most famous names of African-American thought, and indeed American thought quite generally. Both names have cropped up already in our series, but W.E.B. Du Bois and Booker T. Washington are of course going to get much more than a brief mention, beginning next time as we turn from Turner to Washington, here on The History of Africana Philosophy. I'm gonna tell God